Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21, these words. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he, Jesus said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf on the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said, Why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? You may be seated. It is easy in our daily lives to assume understand something when we do not yet really fully understand that concept. Many of us see this on a regular basis if we have little kids, of course. And you may be in the midst of, of correcting a young child for something they have done, and, and you are trying to implore them to understand why they have done something that is wrong, why there are consequences that must be paid. And, and you can watch as the, as the child nods in agreement with everything, with those wide eyes. And that child might be telling you, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, I... I understand completely, but if you're a parent, you obviously understand at times they have no idea what you're talking about. They're just lying to try to get on to the next toy they're hoping to get again. As adults, we oftentimes do this, of course, not as blatantly. If you're like me, you've done this countless times when you sign any agreement online when you purchase something, and you click that little box that says, I uh, hereby agree that I have read and understand everything that is above this line, and, and I, will, I will live up to my, to my role in this. But of course, none of us read that agreement, do we? None of us. We click that box immediately because we say, come on, I just want to purchase this. Let's get on with it. And we assume it won't harm us. We assume that everyone understands that, that true understanding isn't sought, and therefore we just kind of play the part. Oftentimes, when we claim understanding, even though we do not understand, there is not a lot of harm that we will incur upon ourselves. But when it comes to spirituals, particularly matters of Jesus Christ, we of course understand that we are talking about something that is of eternal importance. And if one person assumes that they understand the things of Christ, but does not yet quite understand them, they are risking something far more than just slight misunderstanding or slight miscalculation. They're risking their eternal souls. And so when it comes to matters of Jesus, as we will see here today, it is of the utmost importance that we really grasp, that we really understand what it is that Jesus Christ is claiming to be, that we fully understand that he is in fact, as Mark claims, the Son of God. He is the King of the kingdom, and apart from complete devotion to him, we are all lost. 
As we come to our text today, we will see two groups of people that misunderstand this clear concept. The first group of the Pharisees will be utterly condemned for their misunderstanding. The disciples as well in the second half of the story will also be warned. And what I hope we truly understand as we walk away from here this morning is that we too must be quick and careful to to examine our own hearts. We must be quick to ask ourselves the question that Jesus asks in this text. Do we truly understand? Or are we simply nodding our head in agreement, assuming everything will be okay, only to be greeted one day by eternal judgment? There's no greater concept that we, must, that we must understand, and therefore my hopes is that this morning we might understand it fully. That being said, let's begin our time by reading, or by opening a word in prayer, and we'll start digging into this first point of misunderstanding. Bow your heads in prayer with me, if you will. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our time today. We thank you for the glorious words that we were able to sing just now, the glorious truths of the gospel, that glorious thought that In the cross, our sins are fully paid for, God. Truly, that is a concept that we fail to to fully understand, fully grasp on a regular basis. But we thank you for the fact that it is true regardless of our level of understanding. God, as we continue to examine the gospel of Mark this morning, I pray, Father, that you might clear away the cobwebs in our mind, that you might bring clarity in our vision. That perhaps for the first time we might fully see Jesus Christ for who he is. We might fully understand the glory of the gospel and the reality of the kingdom. And ultimately I pray, Father, that as we all walk away from here, every single one of us might walk away with a newfound appreciation, a new level of understanding of the truths that Jesus sought for us to understand. And that we too might take it upon ourselves to speak this gospel to others, praying that you might use us to bring understanding to others, God. Holy Spirit, give us understanding of the text this morning. Give us clarity. Remove all distractions, we pray. And we pray all these things according to your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we begin to pick up our story in Mark 8, verses 11 through 15, we see that the story picks up right on the heels of where we left off last week. If you were with us last week, you will remember that Mark recounted the tale of of Jesus feeding the 4,000 individuals in verses 1 through 10. And in that account, we see Jesus mirroring the the role of Moses in repeating familiar language to demonstrate how he is similar and yet categorically different. We see yet again Jesus miraculously providing for a group of desperate people, desperate people who were eager to, to hear his teaching, to hang on his every word and Following that miracle, Jesus gets on a boat with his disciples. And upon entering into this new location that is labeled Dalmanutha in verse 10, we see Jesus coming into contact with an entirely different crowd altogether than we saw earlier. For the group that seeks Jesus' attention here is not a group of of eager disciples, nor is it a group of, of eager individuals in need. This is the group we have already come to know to be the Pharisees. Those who in no way love Jesus, but those who seek for his utter destruction. And in this interaction, we see Jesus condemning the Pharisees for their willful blindness. And look again at the text, and we see this layout. There in verse 11, we read that the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, for some of us, this immediate confrontation and even this request might seem a bit ludicrous, right? 
For Jesus just performed another miracle in which he fed 4,000. And and certainly, even if these Pharisees did not see that miracle, they've seen many other miracles similar to it. They've heard Jesus teach with great authority. They have heard of Jesus healing the blind man. They have heard of Jesus doing great and wonderful things. So why, why on earth would they desire or test him by asking for another sign? Well, the key to understand this is, is reading the fact that they're not asking just for another miracle, but again, it's a sign the Pharisees seek. You see, this language speaks not to evidence of Jesus' power, for that power has been made clear, but rather they're trying to get Jesus to prove Yahweh's favor upon him. That's what this language assigned from heaven speaks to him. They're trying this, to get this proof that Jesus is not just powerful, but that he's the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And these Pharisees no doubt think themselves to be very clever in requesting this. For at face value, the Pharisees are asking for something that that has some precedence in the Old Testament. For when you read through the Old Testament, you have numerous examples where servants of God request exactly that. They seek out a sign from Yahweh, a sign that proves that God is with them, that God favors them. If you have time later, you can read of, of people like Gideon who do this in the book of Judges. Or kings like Ahaz and Hezekiah, individuals that struggled mightily with God, but still, they they were there to serve him. They desired to do his will, they just didn't have quite enough faith to to have the courage to move forward. And some of those Old Testament stories in Judges and 2 Kings and Isaiah, you have these men of faith request a sign, and, and we see God actually fulfills their request. God provides exactly what it is those individuals look for. And so for some uneducated person who is approaching this text, for some person who doesn't understand the heart of the Pharisees, this request might at first glance seem understandable and a legitimate test. But we, of course, understand from the text that the Pharisees are by no means following after the example of of someone like Gideon or Ahaz. These Pharisees are driven, not by desire to know Jesus, but to destroy him. We saw that all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where the author Mark does say, in 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Christ so as to see how they might destroy him. This is what is driving the Pharisees and all that they do. Knowing that reality, what many commentators agree on is that these Pharisees aren't referencing a passage like Judges 6, where Gideon seeks a sign, But they are attempting to entrap Jesus with the Mosaic law. For if you read back in passages like Deuteronomy chapter 13, there are clear instructions given to people in how to handle others who offer signs and offer miracles. And in Deuteronomy chapter 13, the clear law is that if these individuals show up, if a person creates some great sign, performs some great miracle, and then encourages you to follow after an unknown God, you are to execute them. You are to cling to Yahweh and separate yourselves entirely from this false teacher, regardless of the signs they might perform. And so many agree that these Pharisees are attempting to to do exactly this to Christ. They're trying to use the Mosaic law to hold Jesus accountable to that which they are commanded to do. They're trying to find a reason to execute Christ. And so they believe, no doubt, that if Jesus performs the sign as requested, they would have just cause then to throw him into prison and lead to his ultimate execution. Jesus, however, of course, sees right through their plot. 
Jesus understands these are not like the individuals that he fed earlier who desire to to please him. These are individuals of a completely different mindset. And you see this fact, you see this truth in Jesus' mind immediately in the way that he responds. For again, picking it up in verses 12 through 15, we read, Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side, and they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf on the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In the words that Jesus uses here to respond to the Pharisees, you see that that he understands fully what it is they're trying to accomplish. Both in the language that he uses as well as in his act of walking away. Referring to the Pharisees, here in verse 12, he, he describes them as this generation. Why does this generation seek a sign? And again, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that might seem like an odd choice of words. Why would Jesus not simply say, why do these Pharisees seek a sign? Why, why describe them in such a, a strange manner? The reason for that is because Jesus is referencing Old Testament texts. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, I, I know who you are. I know exactly what you're trying to do. And by referring to this this generation, Jesus, in essence, compares these Pharisees to the same Israelites that were condemned in the Old Testament for trying to test God. Particularly, those Israelites who attempted to to test God in the wilderness. Hear the words of passages like Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, picking up in verse 8, the psalm says, Do not harden your hearts as as at Meribah. In the days of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. As Jesus refers to these Pharisees as this generation, he is lumping them into the same category of people who have seen the works of God, who know better than to question and yet still demand time and time again another sign, another miracle, more and more evidence. Jesus, in essence, in so few words, is telling these Pharisees, you are no hero of the faith, you are no Gideon, you are no king, you are the grumblers in the wilderness whom God condemned. And so as a result, I will do nothing you desire me to do. The language here in which Jesus uses to to say that no sign will be given to this generation, again, is language that is harsh, it is severe, it is quick. Jesus, in essence, is using the language of of taking an oath in the Old Testament, and it's comparable to to passages such as 2 Kings 20, or 2 Kings 16, rather, where, where a man says, if I do so, may God do so and more to me. If I give you a sign, Jesus says, may God punish me greatly. Jesus here, in other words, is leaving no room for error. No room to allow the Pharisees to think that that perhaps he will give in if they pressure him enough. Jesus is cutting them off completely, and as such, Jesus turns away and returns to the boat. For Jesus understands this is not a crowd seeking the truth. These are willfully blind individuals, and therefore they deserve Jesus' just condemnation. For their faith is false. They are wicked. You see just how wicked Jesus speaks of them when even after returning onto the boat in verses 14 and 15, how Jesus continues to to warn his disciples of these Pharisees. For speaking of these individuals, he again says, 
watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus understands the violent intentions of these Pharisees. Jesus understands these individuals are not just looking for a good debate. These individuals are seeking out to bring a stop to the kingdom that Jesus is there to to create, that Jesus is there to introduce. And Jesus, of course, understands that his disciples will one day have have to deal with that same mindset. These disciples one day have to come face to face with the fact that these Pharisees are not well-intentioned individuals. These Pharisees seek out their murder. They seek out their utter destruction. And so Jesus implores his disciples to understand what just took place, why he was so terse, why he was so brief, why he was so severe. The reason being that these Pharisees are deceiving. They're deceitful. They are willfully blind. And so you must be aware of those, many, of those people like them. As we hear these words of Christ, and as we imagine the scene of the disciples getting on the boat with him, it's easy to assume this, this stark separation between the Pharisees and the disciples. That is to say, it's easy to assume that in this story, the Pharisees have no faith, but here are our good old heroes, the disciples, and, and they're the ones that understand. They're the ones that, that set up the example for us to follow, and as such, it's easy for us to to place ourselves in that boat with our disciples, assuming that that they are the example being set out for us. But as we continue in the story, and as we see their response to Jesus here in a moment, we have to understand that, that while the Pharisees were wicked in their pride, the disciples were themselves still far off from the truth. Regardless of what the disciples might have assumed about themselves, as we continue in the story, we see that their faith also is incomplete, and and dangerous when it comes to their eternal salvation. And and as we continue in the story and consider this this next point regarding incomplete faith, I believe it's vitally important for us to really hone in on on what the problem of the disciples is. Because if we're honest, this this incomplete faith of the disciples is an incomplete faith that is still common very much so today. And if we're not careful, it's an incomplete faith that might characterize our own lives. It is, again, of course, easy to misunderstand this and assume the best of the disciples, for as they get onto the boat with Jesus, just consider the many things they've already experienced. Consider the many ways that we might see the disciples of great examples up to this point in time, for what have we already seen in the the Gospel of Mark? The disciples have already heard a great deal of teaching of Jesus, haven't they? They've heard some of those teachings that have driven others away, and yet the disciples have stayed by Jesus' side. These disciples have witnessed great miracles of Christ, namely the feeding of the 4,000 last week and the feeding of the 5,000 before. These disciples have heard great things. They have seen great things. And through and through, they have stood by Jesus' side, following him all the way. Even more so, these disciples we read earlier in Mark have been used to to perform miracles themselves, to, to preach great truth. And so again, from the outside, it it appears these disciples have it all together. And yet, as we continue in the story, we see what is still lacking. Picking up again in verse 15, let's read verses 15 through 18, where this incomplete faith of the disciples is revealed. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. 
Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Have you, do you have a hardened heart? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? I must admit, the first few times, and even now as I read this story, it's hard not to kind of laugh at the response of the disciples, is it not? For picture the scene again. Here Jesus had performed the great miracle of feeding the 4,000. They get on a boat, they get off the boat, and here come those hated Pharisees. And the Pharisees confront Jesus, and they demand a sign, and Jesus very severely says, this generation will receive nothing. He marches back on the boat, and he begins to say, beware of those Pharisees. Look out, disciples. They are dangerous. And what do the disciples do? They look around, and they say, we forgot the bread. We forgot the bread is the response to Jesus. And in a very human way, I think we can all relate to what the disciples are doing here, right? For the disciples are are missing the bigger picture. And instead of hearing this great warning, all they hear Jesus say is, is leaven. They hear Jesus talk about bread and that triggers in their mind, oh man, we messed up and we forgot the bread. In essence, Commentators are saying these disciples are arguing amongst themselves, saying, okay, who did it? Who was supposed to bring this? Why did we make such a mistake? And it's clear, in the midst of Jesus teaching them about this great warning, the disciples are bickering with one another regarding where they're going to get their next meal. Again, at first glance, this response sounds comical. And it's another example of the disciples failing to miss the greater picture. But of course, in the response of Jesus, we see ultimately... There's nothing funny about this response in terms of salvation, in terms of eternity. For what Jesus exposes, what Jesus reveals in his response is that this question is not just a matter of the moment. This question is revealing where the disciples' own hearts are. And it reveals that despite all of that Jesus has done, the disciples are still entirely focused upon that which is passing, upon that which is earthly. In response to that earthly faith, and again, we see this this immediate, severe language of Jesus. Verse 17, why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember, disciples? The language of Jesus here ought to cause us to to be taken aback a bit, for it is severe language directed at his disciples, is it not? Similar to the way that Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, this is language that is rich with Old Testament imagery. To use language like, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, Jesus is referencing prophets like Jeremiah when when those older prophets speak words of condemnation, words of judgment against the nation of Israel. Here's similar language back in Jeremiah chapter 5, picking it up in verse 20. There we read, declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah, saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble at my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. The waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. In a similar manner, back in the book of Isaiah, you see similar language in which time and time again, prophets speak against the people of Israel who are blind to the spiritual realities that surround them. 
deaf to the message that is constantly being proclaimed to them, ignorant of their own sin, ignorant of the greatness of Yahweh who rules over them. And as we read through those Old Testament texts, we no doubt nod our head in agreement and we think, how foolish Israel. How could you be so blind? How could you be so naive? And yet, shockingly, when we come to Mark, we see Jesus using the exact same language to respond to something that is so seemingly innocent as what the disciples just said. For in response to this simple question about bread, he immediately jumps to this language of of Old Testament prophets, jumps this language of judgment, jumps this language that sounds eerily familiar to the way that Jesus had just spoken to the Pharisees. This is severe. And no doubt, I think, that the disciples themselves would have been taken aback by such severity in his tone. And yet in this response, we must understand that Jesus is not just severe. Jesus is being incredibly gracious to these disciples. For he is forcibly opening their eyes to the the reality that they've been blind to. He is, in essence, yelling at them and saying, wake up. You need to understand this. You need to fully grasp what it is I am saying, for your souls are on the line. This is a gracious word, not just because he is opening their eyes, but but because of of what Jesus says next. For, of of course, when correcting the Pharisees, Jesus simply speaks severely, but, but then what does Jesus do? He turns around and he leaves them. For Jesus understands their hearts, and Jesus understands this is a waste of time. With the disciples, however, this is not the case. Jesus, yes, speaks severely, but then Jesus sticks by them. And Jesus walks along with them, drags them along to try to force them to understand what it is their incomplete faith is missing. And what it is missing is that which Jesus further speaks of in the remaining portion of our passage. Pick it back up again in verse 18. We'll read through 21 where we see Jesus calling for this total understanding, this complete faith. Beginning in verse 18, having eyes do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear, and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Now, it's important to understand here in this passage that Jesus isn't just quizzing the disciples on recent history. He's not saying, pop quiz, disciples. Let's see who remembers the numbers. Now, Jesus is speaking of something much deeper than that, much more effective. And calling them to understand completely, Jesus again uses a sort of language, a sort of calling that is found throughout all of Scripture. It's this calling to remember Remember, think deeply on what it is you have seen. Think deeply on what it is God has accomplished. When you read through the Old Testament, you see numerous examples of this, where God calls his people to remember. Remember what I did here. Remember what I did there. Set up a memorial. Constantly remind yourselves of these things. You see a great example of this back in the book of Joshua. If you would turn with me back to Joshua, for I think it's a a great picture of what we're ultimately supposed to see here. Joshua chapter 4, we have the narrative picking up where the Israelites are finally entering into the promised land. And this long, drawn-out journey is is finally coming at least to a temporary end, and the the Israelites are finally able to see that that God has been true to his promises. 
They finally enter into the promised land, crossing the River Jordan. And upon crossing that, we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. We read, Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out in the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm. Carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God, to the middle of the Jordan. Each of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribe of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Here in this passage, we see the ultimate purpose that, that remembering that our memory is, is always supposed to play. For again, in this narrative, after God miraculously delivers his people into the promised land, he immediately commands them, now, now set up a memorial. Set up large stones from the river Jordan and set them up in a stack so that, why? So that in the future, when your children ask, hey dad, hey mom, what are these stones for? you can, with great account, with great detail, recount exactly what those stones represent. You can tell your children about the Ark of the Covenant. You can tell your children about the covenant of Yahweh. You can tell your children uh, about his faithfulness, about his love. And what's the purpose of all those things? Is it again to, to recount some history lesson to your children? No, of course not. The purpose of, of remembering there is the purpose of discipleship, of evangelism. It's to remind you of this greater picture of God's loving kindness. And time and time again, the Israelites are told, remember I did these things so that you do not lose sight of the bigger picture that is being painted. The same language, I think, is being used by Jesus here in Mark chapter 8. This language of remembering Remember, disciples, what I did. And specifically in this text, he again references this feeding of the 4,000, this feeding of the 5,000. And in so doing, Jesus is, is forcing his disciples to take a step back from this ridiculously temporary concern of bread and, and cause them to remember these greater things that Jesus has already shown to them. He's silencing their worthless discussion and asking them, remember, what did I do with the 5,000? How much was left over? What did I do with the 4,000? How much was left over? Do you not yet understand, disciples? Jesus tells these disciples to recount these things that they should so clearly remember, not to cause them to think more about bread, but again, to see the greater story that is unfolding, to see the sign that was those miraculous feedings to understand that Jesus is not upset with the Pharisees simply because they're missing, missing out on, on the miraculous feeding. Jesus is not upset with the disciples simply because they're hungry. Jesus is upset because he's concerned over the matters of the eternal kingdom. And he needs his disciples to understand this. He needs his disciples to see this greater picture that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the king of all creation is standing before them. And that to become obsessed and overly concerned with physical matters, therefore, 
is illogical and it demonstrates a lack of understanding of who Jesus Christ truly is. To use another text from Matthew chapter 6, in that famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in essence, is saying here, to quote chapter 6 of Matthew, verses 31 through 34, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. In a way that is similar to so many other passages in which Jesus is teaching, Jesus here is trying to get his disciples and trying to get us to understand that the kingdom of God does not consist of one miracle here or another miracle here. Jesus' kingdom is infinitely greater, infinitely more grand. Jesus is the Son of God. The question is, as Jesus ends here, is whether or not you really understand. Do you understand this, disciples? Do you not yet see? In other gospel passages, authors speak of, of the way the disciples responded here, and ultimately we will see that in Mark, that the disciples do ultimately understand. But Mark writes in such a way that is so convicting. He writes in a way in which the story ends on this, this cliffhanger of a question, one that not only causes us to consider the faith of the disciples, but ultimately one that is intended to really strike at our own hearts. One in which it is vital for us to see ourselves in that boat, yes, and to hear this same question from the lips of Christ, do you understand? Do you really grasp this? Or, like the disciples, are you simply still hung up on, on matters that are earthly? Are you hung up on that which is temporary? Do you see Christ as merely a an individual to provide food, an individual to occasionally answer a prayer? Or do you really understand that he's your king? Have you really submitted yourself to his reign? Are you truly a member of his kingdom? This is a question that we must constantly seek to ask ourselves and, and ask one another. And indeed, as you read through the New Testament, you hear this language used time and time again, this language of of asking for understanding, this language of challenging believers, challenging readers to, to really think through their faith, to make sure they're not falling into the same traps of the disciples or falling into the same trap of the Israelites in the wilderness. Rather, see to it that we fully understand and have a faith that runs in accordance with the full gospel. And so as we consider all of these things of Christ, all these words of Christ, it's important, again, that we walk away not with just a greater appreciation of the power of God, but we walk away with a complete and full understanding. For unbelievers, the warnings here of this passage are clear. For there are still so many unbelievers in our world that see Christ as a sort of debate. And, and they might ask questions, they might read through scripture, but not with the heart of, of really finding the truth, more with the heart of trying to prove it wrong. Many of us have dealt with unbelievers like this. People who just seek to argue. People who just seek to, to prove their own intellect, prove their own abilities. If this is you, my, my hope is that you see this image of Christ in Mark 8, verses, verses 11 through 13. You understand Christ is not someone to be trifled with. 
He's not impressed by you. He's not impressed by, by some contradiction you think you find in Scripture. He's not impressed by your demand for a sign. He's the king of all creation. And he demands your submission. And so quit asking for more signs, unbeliever. Quit asking for another debate. See the true, simple fact that Christ is king and he demands your submission. My prayer, my hope for you, unbelievers, that you might see that today. You might place your faith in Jesus, your trust in his kingly authority. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, my concern and my prayer is that we too might hear this, this warning, that we might hear this question of Jesus. In a similar fashion, we might hear the echo of this language, not simply in Mark, but over in the book of Hebrews. There as we close, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. For we find the same test, the same urging given to believers today, just as it was given to believers then. Speaking of that exact same example of Israelites in the wilderness, and speaking of a similar warning which Jesus spoke in Mark 8 in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3, picking up in verse 7, we read, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. As in the days of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. The warning that Jesus gave to his disciples, the warning the author of Hebrews gives to his readers, is the same warning we must heed today. For just as the author of Hebrews writes to people who all claim faith, so too, most of us in here no doubt claim faith. But just because we claim this does not excuse us from the serious work of examining ourselves. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, my, my urging to you is, is really examine your heart. Ask yourself, do I understand? Do I really understand Christ or am I fooling myself? As you ask yourself that, remember these great works of God. Remember the feeding in the wilderness. Remember Christ. Remember, most importantly, his death, burial, and resurrection. And as you do this, I pray you might be encouraged, but I also pray you do not stop with self-examination, for the context of Hebrews demands that we ask these same questions of one another. That we ask our brothers and sisters in Christ, do you remember? Do you understand? Do you know who Christ is, who we are serving? We must understand that our service does not end here on Sunday mornings, but we are called to live in a tight-knit community of believers. For we are all family, and we are called to hold each other accountable. And so meet with one another. Ask one another these questions. Ensure one another that you are helping hold each other accountable, lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart in any one of us. Then and only then can we fully understand. Then and only then can we have our eyes open to the full glory and majesty of Christ who is before us, then and only then can we properly appreciate the words of Christ and live out our lives as true members of his kingdom. Let us close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for these stern words of your son, Jesus Christ. They are convicting, God. 
so incredibly convicting. For it is so easy to just assume that we are all okay. It is so easy to look at a a fellow professing believer in Jesus Christ and assume they, they must be fine, they must have a true faith. And yet, as we see from the examples of the disciples, as we hear the words of Christ, and as we consider even the words of Hebrews, we know that is a foolish assumption to make. And so, God, my prayer is that there might not be any unbelieving heart here this morning. For the unbelievers that are present with us, God, I pray that you open up their eyes to the truth of your Son. I pray that they do not persist in in demanding any sort of question to be answered. They do not persist in seeking out a sign, but they see the clear fact of your Son's rule, of his authority. And they respond in humble submission, receiving his grace, receiving his love, but receiving it as his servant, God. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, might we be quick to ask ourselves this question. Might we be obedient of scriptures and asking our fellow brothers and sisters this question time and time again. And in so doing, might you build up this community of believers. Might you build up this family. And might you be pleased by the complete faith that you witnessed, Lord. Might you be pleased by the faith that you have given us and that you continue to perfect in us, God. We praise you, God. We thank you for giving us this understanding, God, and we pray that we do not allow the concerns of this world to blur our vision and to cause us to become focused on lesser things. Jesus, cause your beauty to shine clearly before our eyes. Cause our hearts to once again be fully in love with you and cause us to follow an appropriate submission and obedience. We praise you, God, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.